All right. Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Hope Lower Town. And again, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at Lower Town. Thankful to uh, be here. Here comes my family coming in, not to call you out. Uh, but uh, Daylight Savings, I, I, I don't know how they're even here. So good job, Mom, uh, who's ready to give birth here in just a couple weeks. She's uh, pretty awesome, not going to lie. Um, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, and even those of you who thought you knew me uh, maybe don't recognize me uh, simply by losing the hair and the beard, but uh, it is kind of freeing. Um, we we uh, moved moved up in the world into the minivan world, and so those of you who know me, uh, I've got my, my Jeep, my, uh, my beautiful Cherokee, uh, turquoise Jeep uh, that I, I adore, but... Um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna store it. My brother-in-law has got a barn, so I'm gonna go throw it up there, and, and so it's not, it's not gone completely. Uh, so I, I upgraded. I, I now have a vehicle that has 180,000 miles less uh, than the Jeep, which is always a, a good thing. Uh, so I just thought, hey, I'm getting a newer car. To me, it's our my wife's old car, and uh, I'm, I might as well go for a new look as well, right? So uh, this is normally how I've looked my whole life. So it's not that weird to me, but I know it can be for you. All right, who cares? Let's jump into this. We are in week 11 of Jesus is Greater, looking at the book of Hebrews. And so what we've been doing is we've just been slowly inching through this book of Hebrews, kind of chunk by chunk, passage by passage. This week, uh, I think, is actually theologically the most uh, rich and deep out of anything we've covered so far in Hebrews. And yet it's also the biggest as far as words and amount of thing that's going to be said. So there's a lot of Bibles. If you're, if you're new to Christianity, checking out Christianity, uh, new to the Bible, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of the storyline today, uh, similarly uh, to like what we did last week, uh, but a lot, a lot is going on here. So, um, so buckle up. One of my favorite uh, movies of all time is Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, it's, it's not super popular, uh, but it's uh, it's a drama. It's not a it's not a comedy, right? So I know Will Ferrell is is you know funny guy, comedian, SNL guy. That's um, not Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, I've never been able to watch it and not cry. That's how like I gauge if it's a good movie or not. Is like how how much sobbing am I doing? And it and then again, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. It always makes me cry. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting uh, movie. This guy's name is Harold, okay, and he's a, an accountant. He's an auditor for the CIA, and uh, he has these personality quirks, uh, like a lot of accountants. My wife is one, so I'm allowed to, allowed to say that, I think. Uh, my wife is definitely not like Harold, though, I can tell you that right now. Uh, but he brushes his teeth, and he counts it 28 times for each tooth, up and down, up and down, and he does all these things, and he, and he does all these very meticulous things in his life, uh, but everything is controlled by his watch. And so he wears this rich wristwatch and he times everything so that he will stay on schedule to get to go where he's got to go and do it. So he saves 4.2 seconds every morning by, by tying a single Windsor knot uh, tie versus a double Windsor knot. And so that's a great thing, right? So you've got this, this individual uh, who's living by his watch. Uh, and and there's a scene though that that takes place where he's in the he's getting ready in the morning. And there's this narrator that's you know narrating in the story that we would any story or any movie. And what happens is, uh, as he's doing this, he all of a sudden actually begins to hear the narrator talking. So the narrator is speaking in the movie, but then he, as the character in the in the storyline, begins to actually hear the narrator. Right. So he's like, "Hello, who's there?" Right. And he's kind of starting to freak out. He's kind of losing his mind. 
Well, this one scene, and the narrator, the voice kind of comes and goes, this one scene, he's standing at a bus stop, and his watch dies. And uh, for whatever reason, the watch turns off, and then he, he starts it back up again, and he just says, can I ask you for the time to someone standing there? And they give him the time, and he, he sets his watch. Well, then the narrator voice comes in, and, and the narrator's voice says, little did he know that this seemingly insignificant, innocuous act would ultimately lead to his death, <laughs> okay? And Harold's standing there, and this is the scene where he's like, hello, what? What did you just say? What, what act? What did I do that's actually going to lead, lead to my death? I'm confused, right? But he's screaming this out to this random voice, and the people around him are like, what is going on? They kind of distance themselves from uh, Harold as he's losing his mind. The whole rest of the story, he's trying to figure out, what did I do that's going to ultimately lead to my death. He meets Dustin Hoffman, who's an English professor, and he says, the voice said, little did he know, and he says, Dustin Hoffman says, oh, oh, little did he know. I, I've given lectures on the phrase, little did he know. Uh, and so Dustin Hoffman tries to help him figure out who's narrating his life, and it's, a, it's just a really cool story. But it's this whole idea, this seemingly really small, insignificant thing that changes the course of Harold's life. That is the passage that happens today that we're finally going to look at Melchizedek. And again, if you haven't been here, Melchizedek's been mentioned, this character, uh, two or three times now in the book of Hebrews, just kind of a, a name drop. And I've been having to say, hey, we're going to get there, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. Well, now we're there. Now we get to talk about Melchizedek. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, looking at verses 1 through 28. It's the entire uh, chapter, chapter 7. Uh, and I have spent a lot of time in my life studying this character of Melchizedek. If I uh, last week I mentioned uh, theologian R.C. Sproul, who said his favorite verse, Genesis fifteen seven, or Ge- sorry, Genesis fifteen seventeen, uh, and I would say probably because of my uh, love and, and appreciation for Melchizedek, I could probably say my favorite is going to be the passage that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter fourteen eighteen through twenty. Um, that the entire scriptures hinge on this guy. Who is this guy? But it seems so small. And maybe not a name that we're really familiar with, and yet, wow, there's a lot, a lot going on here. So uh, I just want to answer a couple questions. Who is he? Who is this character? Who is Melchizedek? And why is it significant that Jesus was slash is greater than Melchizedek? And so we've been going through, that's the name of the series, Jesus is Greater, and every single week, now 10 weeks, we've seen how Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is greater than Old Testament prophets. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than all these different things. And, and now we're going to say Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And why is that significant? So let me just start off by looking now here at Hebrews chapter 7. And it says this. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. Melchizedek was king of of Salem. Why is that significant? Again, look at these verses that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Uh, um, Victor P. Hamilton. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Alexander Hamilton. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Victor P. Hamilton in his book on Genesis said this. Melchizedek is connected with the city of Salem, traditionally identified as Jerusalem. Psalm 76.3 explicitly connects Salem with Jerusalem, uh, Zion, it's called in 76 Psalm. Uh, this indicates that the Sumerian name was given to Jerusalem long before David appeared. It's King David, which we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about today, possibly when Jerusalem was an outlying trading post for uh, the Sumerians. So is this really important that, that, that Melchizedek was king of what would eventually become Jerusalem? No, not a lot hinges on that, but it is not insignificant. 
that, uh, that this guy, Melchizedek, is king over Jerusalem, this city of David, that he's going to be the king over Jerusalem, and also ultimately Jesus is going to be crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, so there's a lot going on when it comes to the king. But he's not only king, as we saw in that passage. Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And this is incredibly significant. Why? Because the, in, the, in the book of Leviticus, uh, which we're going to talk a little bit, there's just a lot going on today. So um, in the book of Leviticus, though, there's all these rules and restrictions to the Levites, to the priests. And one of those major restrictions uh, to the Levites was that you could only be a priest. You can't be a priest and a king. And the warnings also were to kings saying you can be a king, but you cannot perform priestly duties. And so Saul, the first king of Israel, the first king that's appointed by God and chosen by the people to be king of Israel is this guy named Saul. And at one point he's waiting for the priest. He's waiting for this priest to get there to perform a sacrifice. And Saul says, I can't wait any longer. So just read that. I'm just going to read this and we'll, then we'll talk about it. Saul remained at Gilgal and then uh, with all the troops with him and they were quaking with fear. And he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. So Samuel's the high priest. He said, Samuel said, I'm going to be there in seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering uh, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What'd you do, right? What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me uh, at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You said you were going to come. You didn't come. This army's waiting to attack me, uh, and I wanted to make sure God was going to be on our side, so I performed the sacrifice. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command that the Lord or Yahweh, your God, gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But if you just would have obeyed this simple thing and didn't go against what God commanded a king not to do, your kingdom would have been established forever. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This one simple, seemingly simple command, this one small command that is given to kings, Saul breaks and loses that kingship and it goes then to King David. And now these promises about a kingdom enduring forever now are passed on to David rather than Saul. But Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a king and a priest. Right? So, so why is that okay? Why is it okay for Melchizedek, who, who we're going to read, a king of, or a priest of the God Most High, a king of Salem, why is he allowed to do those things and God's okay with this? What? What's going on here? So let's go, and I want to look back now at the seemingly innocuous act in the Old Testament. I want to look at what's happening here. So again, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High, and he met Abraham returning from, excuse me, from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. So the author of Hebrews, again, is writing to Hebrews, writing to Jews. They would have been extremely familiar with this story. 
Not only because of the story was in Genesis, but also because King David mentions this. So they would have been familiar with this story. So the author of Hebrews just kind of mentions it and moves on. We're not going to do that. We want to go, we want to go back. So what's going on? In Genesis chapter 12, this is when God makes his covenant with Abram. Abram is going to change his, God's going to change his name to Abraham. God makes the covenant. He says, hey, you'll see all the stars go outside. And when you see all those stars, so are your descendants going to be. And Abram's like, yeah, okay, I believe you. And it says that it's credited to him as righteousness. So that's Genesis chapter 12. And then we get to 13 and 14. What happens in Genesis 13 and 14 is that uh, Abram uh, starts to, to gain uh, reputation and wealth and people start following him and joining his tribe. And he gets this huge army. Uh, actually, it wasn't really an army. It was just like a, a tribe of, of wandering people. Uh, but his son, nephew, his son, nephew, his, his nephew, Lot, I don't know if his son popped in there. Lot, his nephew, is kidnapped, is captured, along with a lot of other people. And so he, Abram says, we can't stand for that. Uh, and other kings come around, all these different things. So Abram goes after Lot, and there's this huge battle, and Abram, Abraham wins this battle, handedly, wins this battle, uh, rescues Lot, and he has all these uh, plunders of war uh, with him. And that's kind of where this story that we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 16, uh, says, uh, starts, it says, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating uh, Kidlamor and the kings that allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high and he blessed Abraham saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, give me the people, sorry, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. So there's a connection here. There's a God most high and creator of heaven and earth. So what, what the author of Genesis is doing is saying that Melchizedek is a, is a priest of the God most high, creator of heaven and earth. They're worshiping the same God. It's Yahweh. He says that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamer, let them have their share. That's it. I mean, if you look back at this, if, if you were to read these verses, 16 uh, and 17, and then just skip 18 through 20 and then jump right here, it actually flows. It, it doesn't, we don't miss anything. But there's these three verses in here about this guy, Melchizedek, and then Abram giving him a tenth of everything. That's really, really significant. And he's not mentioned. This guy, Melchizedek, is not mentioned anywhere else in the entire story, anywhere else in the Old Testament except one verse, one verse in Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews, just in a couple places uh, that we've already mentioned uh, in chapter 7. And yet, a lot hinges on this character. <laughs> So what is it? Why is this significant? So let's learn a little bit more about Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews, all the author of Hebrews is going to do is simply, uh, simply asking logical questions, kind of moving forward. Okay, we know the story. 
Now let's, let's just look at who this character is of Melchizedek. It says this. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of God. I know we're like, we're not even through verse one yet. I promise we're going to go a lot faster here uh, for the rest of the service. Uh, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so he's just recapping the story. Here's, here's what happened. Now here's what's significant about this character of Melchizedek. It says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. So he's this king of righteousness and a king of peace, which should sound eerily familiar if we know the rest of the story about Jesus. It says, without father and mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, not saying Melchizedek is the son of God, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, the author here is not saying uh, that Melchizedek didn't have any parents. That's absurd. It's not what he's saying. It's not what the author of, of Hebrews is saying and not even trying to imply that at all. Uh, what they are saying is that his parents are not important. Right? And again, not to diss Melchizedek's parents, but he's saying they're not, they're not necessary and required for his, his priesthood. Right? They are insignificant because Mel Melchizedek's, I always like, I just put Mel in my notes. I don't have to type, write out Melchizedek every time. And I always, so if I keep calling him Mel, that's what, I, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, because Melchizedek's priesthood and his kingship wasn't because of his bloodline. There was something different about Melchizedek that's different from the Levites, which we'll talk about. Moving on here in Hebrews chapter 7, just think how great he was. Okay, so, Again, author of Hebrews, the whole entire book, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater. Now all of a sudden there's a shift. Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Gave Melchizedek a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their fellow Israelites even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendants from Levi, yet collected a tenth from Abraham and, uh, and blessed him who had the promise. Okay, so, so Abraham gives a tenth, and then Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the one who has the promise. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So say Melchizedek blessed Abraham, that means he was greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die, but in the other case, by him who declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects a tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. <laughs> what? What's going on here? What's happening? And I, I uh, tried to, you know, make some visual aids and that kind of thing, but uh, it's not super important. Uh, just got to get some names right. But the big question that's happening in that passage, what, what everything that the author of Hebrews just said, is just trying to ask us, there's a difference here between Melchizedek and Levi. So then who, who is Levi? Well, if you Google uh, Levi, uh, you get a picture of Brett Favre sitting on the back of a pickup truck. Uh, but it's actually really misleading uh, because he doesn't advertise for Levi jeans. He, it, Wrangler jeans. But it's funny, but if you type in Levi jeans, you get pictures of Brett Favre, right? So that means it's bad marketing on Wrangler's part, I think. So it's not Levi jeans, Wrangler jeans, but that's what I thought. I thought too it was Levi's. Okay, who's Levi? What's going on here? All right, 
You have Abraham. We understand that. Abraham is called by God. Go out. Leave your family behind. I want you to go. Uh, your, your mother and father, leave them behind. Leave your false gods behind. I want you to go uh, to this land that I have for you. I'm going to give you descendants. You're going you're to be great. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I guarantee you're going to be great on my own deity. If this doesn't come true, we looked at that last week, my, I will cease to be God if what I promised you doesn't come true. So we have that character, Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has uh, 12 sons. Who but one of his sons is Levi. So Levi is a great-grandchild of Abraham. So you've got Abraham and you've got Levi. So what all, all that author of Hebrews is trying to say is that Levi, that in, their, in this priesthood, the Levites who were the line of priests, that they were required, they, they got a tithe from the people. They didn't own land, they didn't own possessions, they couldn't, they couldn't do any of these things. So what they would do to survive kind of in a similar fashion, the way that I do, uh, that people give money to the church. And that's what I live off of. That's what exactly kind of what the Levites did. Uh, but they would be given uh, oil from, from, a, from a person. They'd be given grain from other people. And they would get 10% of what was going on to the, to the, to the temple and for them to, to live off of. So then that was called a tithe. And so that tithe, though, that they would get, and that what's, what the author of Hebrews is saying here, but even the Levites, the ones that accept the tithe from the people, they tithed to Melchizedek through Abraham. The Levitical priesthood pays and paid a tithe to Melchizedek through their bloodline of Abraham. Okay, so what's the big deal? Why is this important? Why does this even matter? That's a cool history lesson about this guy named Melchizedek. What's, what's important? Well, I'm going to let the author of Hebrews just continue to walk through this logical connection here. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. And indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek. We haven't gotten there, but, but the psalmist, King David, is going to say there's, uh, that this Messiah is going to be in the order of Melchizedek. If, if one could achieve perfection, if one could achieve salvation by following the law, why do we need this line? Why do we need Melchizedek and not the order of Aaron? Again, just another name drop. It just keeps kind of throwing out these, these names. Aaron was Moses' brother, uh, brother-in-law, excuse me. Oh, no, brother. Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was uh, the first high priest ever. And so when you have that, so he's a descendant of Levi, and you have all this stuff going on, okay? Aaron was the first high priest for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. So you have these, this priesthood, Levitical priesthood, law. Live under the law. That's do these things, don't do these things, eat these things, don't eat these things. Obey the Ten Commandments. It's all that. And Levi is saying, but that never did it. That never fixed it. But yet what it says, for when the priesthood is changed. So this Levitical priesthood was established first, and yet you have Melchizedek, who was around 500 years plus before Levite, the Levites and the Levitical priesthood would even be established. And this is incredibly significant, but why? Because before the law was ever made, before the law was even given to mankind, it already wasn't going to work. The law was never meant to save anyone, and nobody was ever saved by the law. Nobody. 
Just because you do things the exact right way doesn't mean that your heart has been transformed. So we ask ourselves a question, how, well, then how were people saved then back then, if we could use that language? How were they redeemed? They believed in the promises of God, and the promises of God always point to himself, faith, belief in my word and who I am and what I've said. The law screams, you need Jesus. You need God. Believe in the promises of God. The law never saved anyone. So keep that in mind as we keep moving through this. Why does the author then keep talking about this order of Melchizedek? Hebrews 7, keep moving on here. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that the Lord descended from Judah and in regard to the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. But we have said that it's even more clear that if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are my priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Again, what is going on here? You have again that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the family members, right? The 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. But you've got Abraham, but you have Judah, and you've got Levi. They're brothers, these guys are brothers. They're both grandchildren of Abraham. And what happens here? You've got the tribe of Judah, and which is very clear in Scripture, Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Kings come from the tribe of Judah. The promised one is going to come from the tribe of Judah. But priests come from the Levitical, uh, from, from Levi's line. But we know that based on the law, which I mentioned King Saul falling under and failing under, to live under this law, you cannot be both. You cannot be a descendant of Judah and a descendant of Levi. You cannot be both king and priest. You can't do it. Therefore, if Christ is to be our high priest, our arbiter, someone who could stand between God and me and put our hand, his hand on our shoulders and say, I want to bring you together they cannot descend from Levi. Christ cannot descend from Levi. Then how in the world are we going to do these ancestral gymnastics? How does this work? How is it that he can be both? I, I'm confused. Well, King David gives us a little bit of insight into this. So I want to look at the devotional life of King David, because if you remember, King David only had scriptures that were written before, before his time. So he would have had Abraham, or sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would have known about them in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, not much more after that. He studies these books in and out, and, he, and then he, he writes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that is written about the Messiah, the future Messiah, who's going to come and he's going to save Israel. So King David, I'm just going to read this and we'll, we'll kind of pick it apart here a little bit. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, and your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, we're going to get a little glimpse into the devotional life of King David. Because remember, this is just three verses that we get in Genesis chapter 14 that King David is looking at and going, holy cow, something is different. 
about this Melchizedek. And it's connected with the Messiah and this priesthood. This Melchizedek guy is connected with the Messiah. So again, Messianic Psalm about the future Messiah says this, the Lord says to my Lord, and this is important that David writes this, and we know that this is David writing this. The Lord, again, when it's in all caps in our English translation, that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord. When Lord is in lowercase, it means master, ruler. So Yahweh says to my master, well, who in the world is the master of the king? There isn't one except the Messiah, except God himself. And so David does so. He's reading this passage and he's going, okay, the Messiah is greater than me. A descendant from my line, a son of David, maybe yes, but bigger, better in so many ways. And so Yahweh says to my master, but yet somehow going to be my descendant, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. All these different things. Jesus actually talks about this. He quotes this passage in Mark chapter 12. He says, well, Jesus was teaching the temple courts. He asked, why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? And someone could have shouted out a litany of passages to say, this is why all these passages, all these prophecies, yeah, of course the Messiah is the son of David. Jesus says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under your, under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son, his descendant? And a large crowd listened to him with delight. Something very unique about the Messiah who descends from David, but yet he was also David's Lord. He's been around for a while, and David's figuring this out. Something bigger about this Messiah. It's bigger than me. And he figured it out studying Genesis chapter 14. Then skipping down over to Psalm 110, again, the rest of it, just looking down at verse 4, says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. He's making an oath right here, right? And as we looked at last week, when he makes an oath, he cannot lie. He makes a promise, it's good. Not the way we keep promises, he keeps his promises. Here's the oath that he makes. You, Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, because you're a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David, not Levi. But you need to be a priest. You need to be an arbiter. You need to stand between humanity's fallen flesh and God. In other words, Abraham and David knew something greater. Something greater needed to come to actually save them from their sins. Right? The law couldn't do it. The law won't do it. The law won't ever do it. I cannot earn the good graces of God by being a good human being. It won't work. So what this teaches is what Melchizedek teaches. It screams the law never worked. Even David says, you don't care about the blood from bulls. And yet the scripture teaches blood from bulls to sacrifice for sins. But that doesn't ever pay for my sins. It just overlooks them. It just passes them over until the actual covenant, the blood of Christ can take them. These laws were never meant to save them. And David is understanding that just from these three verses. And again, the author of Hebrews continues and says, the former regulation is set aside. Former regulation, law, old covenant. What is happening here? It is set aside. Wait, why is the law set aside? 
because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. It didn't work. Unless it made me scream, I need something more. I need God. I cannot do this by my own merit. And a better hope, a better hope is introduced by God, sorry, is introduced by which we draw near to God. Again, in the old covenant, you had this holy of holies. Only one day a year would the high priest be allowed to go in there and enter into this Shekinah glory where, which represents God. He'd perform a sacrifice. And what happens only one day a year and fear and trembling and trepidation would happen. But then Jesus dies on the cross. As we looked last week, the, the veil is torn in two. And now there is no separation of holy of holies and this space. God looks at the entire world and says, this is mine. I have access to all of this now. Why? Because there's a better covenant in the blood of Christ. It was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he, Melchizedek, or Christ, sorry, but Jesus became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn that will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So now we get into this understanding of the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. I know we're using a lot of annoying big words, but Melchizedek is a big name. You can't, you can't you know, shorten that. Hey, Mel, Mel, the, the Mel, Mel, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Melchizedek over Levi, okay? What's superior about it? What we see about this and why Melchizedek changes everything is because it is so much better. Why? It's universal, first and foremost. The Levitical priesthood simply was for ethnic Israelites. And even if you were not an ethnic Israelite, you had to, you had to be brought into their camp. You had to become an Israelite to be underneath that priesthood. This priesthood is for everyone, all people. All nations will be blessed through Abraham. And this is going to be universal, not just for one ethnic group, but for all people of all time. It's royal, which the Levitical priesthood can't be. There's a kingliness. There's a, there's a righteousness. There's a power here. That's good and in control and sits on a throne in a, unlike a way that a, a Levite could. It's peaceful, as we saw just right off the bat. It means king of righteousness, king of peace. This is not what happens in Levitical priesthood, that they are only uh, trying to show that, that, that the peace is coming, the righteousness is coming through the blood of a lot of animals. And then we see that it's eternal. And we see that when Jesus says it is finished on the cross and he gives up his spirit, says that he descends and he sits down on the throne. He's sitting down. Whereas we're going to see here, the, the author of Hebrews says, day after day, these priests just keep doing this over and over and over and over and it doesn't do anything. It only says, this is trying to tell you day after day that you need to look to God because you cannot do this. Verse 22, we're almost there. Because of this oath, that is, you are in an order forever of Melchizedek, because of that oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. He guarantees this better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, 
because he always lives to intercede for them. How, but in my sin, who am I to approach God? If you put your faith in Christ, it says right here in black and white, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through Christ. Because Christ, because the Messiah always lives to intercede for them. And we can believe in him who was sent for you, for me, for your sins. And he's the only way that what this, what Melchizedek teaches is that we can no longer say, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I'm good enough. I hope the things that I'm doing with my life are good enough and can inch me into heaven. It can't. You cannot be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. Nobody will ever be good enough except Jesus. He is the only one who is good. And he even lived under the law and obeyed it perfectly. He was tempted the way we were tempted, yet without sin. And he died on our behalf so that we can go to him with faith and grace and believe in the promise of God and say, I can do nothing. That's what Melchizedek means. But we don't just see the superiority of Melchizedek over Levi, but we see the superiority of Christ over Melchizedek. Last few verses here in Hebrews, in this passage we're looking at, it says, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Melchizedek wasn't that. Melchizedek was a human being. He wasn't perfectly holy. He wasn't blameless. He wasn't pure. He wasn't set apart from sinners. Melchizedek was a sinner. He wasn't exalted above the heavens. Christ is, unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So the superiority of Christ over Melchizedek is it is a finished work. I already mentioned that. It is finished. So it doesn't mean that we get to go and say, oh yeah, but, but I want to do this thing. I want to earn some favor. Can't do it. It's finished. It's finished. It's a better work. It's completed. Stronger. No longer any law. Established forever. And so that Christ can be a mediator between God and mankind. So that when we have anything going on in our lives, that we now can cry out to God and go directly to the throne of grace. Said he will meet us and help us in a time of need. Looked at that in in Hebrews chapter four. So in gospel application, Jesus has set us free from the law. And then he guarantees it. He guarantees it with his own blood. The law becomes obsolete. And so I've already mentioned this. You might say, "I, I hope I'm good enough. I'm telling you, you're not you got to go to Jesus. Those of us who say, man, I'm a follower of Jesus. I I believe in this. I believe in the the gift of grace that God gives. I believe that he is the only way. He is the uh, the way, the truth, and the life. And I I get to put my trust in him. But yet, if you're like me, sometimes I just hope God likes me more than he likes you. I need Jesus. I need to be set free from the law. I need to be set free from sin and believe in Jesus. That we ask ourselves, maybe, maybe if I just killed this sin, 
and I stop doing this thing, God will love me more. He can't love you any more, and he can't love you any less. That's Melchizedek. That's the priesthood of Melchizedek that is proven and guaranteed in the blood of Christ. Well, maybe if I just read my Bible every day, maybe if I, if I go to church more regularly, he'll accept me. He'll give me this thing that I've been praying for. It's got nothing to do with your merit. It's got everything to do with Christ. Go to Jesus. Are those things good? Yeah, good. Do those things. It's great. Just know that your position as an adopted child of God doesn't change whether I do something or don't do something. I live under the freedom that we have in Christ, the law of Christ, that now these things that we might say, oh man, we, we should do that as a Christian. No, we get to do these things. We get to. Because Christ, because he has established this priesthood forever in the order of Melchizedek, has set us free from the law or thinking that we can do anything to improve our status as a better son or as a better daughter than somebody else in his family. Will you bow your head and pray with me? Father, I thank you for, again, just the opportunity that we have to assemble. Um, I pray that you'd be just honored and glorified as we partake of elements here in a minute, uh, that you would um, be glorified, uh, that we would reflect to you the glory to your name, that we would reflect on the priesthood of Jesus Christ that was established forever in the order of Melchizedek, that we are free from the law, but Christ guarantees our freedom, our salvation with his own blood, not the blood of some animal, of some lamb, but the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So God, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified uh, as we partake of these elements, as we sing, as we lift up our voices. And it's in Jesus' most beautiful name that we pray. Amen.